I mean, we're rolling up on 20 years. 20 years. Longest war in history. Yeah. That's um, alarm bell. I mean, I still meet people who are like, we're not still in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm pretty sure that President Obama pulled us out of there. And that's a problem. I'm Kevin Nicholson, and this is the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. Thanks for joining us for season two of the Right Idea Podcast. This season, we're sitting down and having conversations with a series of great Americans to celebrate our country, to talk about addressing our challenges, and to lay out a path forward. Today on the Right Idea Podcast, we're sharing a recent conversation I had with Sam Rogers from Concerned Veterans for America. Sam calls Wisconsin home, and he's an Army vet who served three tours abroad and who now advocates for America's veterans. He travels the state of Wisconsin, giving veterans a positive platform to be heard. Our conversation dives into defining limits for our conflicts abroad, advocating for veterans' rights, especially in healthcare, and getting to the heart of how we honor service members who have sacrificed for their nation. This is the Right Idea Podcast. All right, so we are here today with Sam Rogers, Coalition's Director for uh, Concerned Veterans for America in Wisconsin. Sam, we are thrilled to have you in Waukesha for the Right Idea podcast on a sub-zero day. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> are you staying warm? Um, I'm trying. Well, let's jump into it. So on the Right Idea podcast, we've been talking to everybody this season about, well, we're starting the conversation before we talk more about CVA. Uh, I just want to ask you, like, what is it about this country, the United States of America, that you believe makes it truly exceptional, that makes it unique in the world? I think, I think the, the idea, the American idea, is what has driven that exceptionalism, that, um, that all men are created equal, that government exists to protect the rights of the individual, um, not to infringe upon them. Um, and I think that this, this visionary roadmap that our founding fathers had um, is something that was so perfect that, I mean, we've never been able to truly live up to it, but we've continued to be able to chase it. To strive for it. Absolutely. Right. I mean, they, right. you know, and, and I think often, you know, people talk about, well, the founding fathers owned slaves. Well, they absolutely did. They also built the tools into our Constitution to remedy those grave injustices. Um, and throughout history, we've continued to make meaningful progress using that constitutional roadmap as our North Star and those, that, that, that vision for a free society of free people. You know, we, I talk about it a lot in front of audiences, and I do think it's an important thing to note that, yes, the conception in, of the the country, or the country at its inception, was of course imperfect, and what the constitutional mechanisms you're talking about allowed for, to some degree, the Constitution itself could actually be modified. But then it took actually the spilling of blood, American blood, to get us to where we are today, which is also imperfect. But it is so much more uh, advanced than so many other societies around the world, and that is so so important to this conversation: is context, human history, understanding. What, what, what others in the world have done wrong as well. And not to say to excuse, but to say, look, understand the progress the American people have made coming from every corner of the world, all looking different, all having different perspectives, and getting to the point of realizing this idea that you talked about, that every individual life 
is uh, guaranteed the rights given to it by God. Absolutely, and and I think I think that you really you really hit the nail on the head. You know, this it's easy to look at this in a in a bubble as a maybe a, a twenty year old or thirty year old or four year old, right? Like a like a bubble of where I started and where I am today. But right. we live the absolute best life of any human beings in recorded history, right? Um, indisputably, right. and in the pursuit of that, following this this constitutional liberty north star Mm -hmm. i mean we have also carried billions of people around the world out of abject poverty um many are still in poverty right and and there's a long way to go both domestically and in and in how we engage in the world um but it is working and it's working better than anything that has ever been attempted before right that's what makes it so unique and context matters in discussing the evolution of societies and, yes, the ground we need to cover. To that, you have to understand the ground that we have covered to this point. And I think that's a great point you bring up. And it's not claiming perfection because we're not in that business. It's about understanding the way the world works and understanding that this system is so unique and has empowered such a, a birth of prosperity and opportunity unlike ever seen before. And maybe we should bring that up when we talk about our country every now. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, and it's also, I think it's also fair to say that where, you know, institutions in our country are struggling, um, that's often connected to comfort, complacency, and neglect mm-hmm. for of a system that demands participation. You know, there's 600-some thousand elected positions in this country. Is it that high? It's right. Okay. Well, I mean, we're yeah, talking yeah. school board, sure, school all board, top to bottom. The, right, top to bottom. Right. I mean, that is a that is a participate even with 300 something million people, that's a participation system. Yeah. And and yet as you know, we struggle to find anyone who's interested in participating in a school <laughs> yes, board, a city too. council, a, a state assembly race. Yes. You know, folks go unchallenged in primaries and right. and and Despite the the massive growth in our population, uh, we've forgotten that this is a system that demands participation mm-hmm. to stay true to that constitutional north star. Right. Ideally informed participation. Yes, that would be the that would be the pinnacle. That's Ideal. what we're shooting for. So yes, tell me a bit about uh, concern. Well, about CVA. Just talk to me about the mission, its founding, a little bit about its history, and then we can talk then from there more about what you're doing today. Yeah. So uh, so CVA's. You know, mission statement is to preserve uh, the freedoms and prosperity that we and our families um, have fought to defend throughout history. We being uh, the military community, right? right. Um, and you know, originally, I think it it started as a um, as a group to oppose the 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 rise of of fairly aggressively left leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, veterans organizations that were explicitly partisan um, and not not really I mean they were veterans but they right. they were simply partisan they had a political agenda it that's around the time of initial like not long after launching of Iraq or I can't I just um, can't place it yeah so so um, I, th- I would say um, I think in like the late 2000s okay. uh, it started um, now now the organization then found that the perspective that we were bringing to the table, which was a which was not necessarily a partisan one, mm-hmm. that we had the capability to provide a voice to uh, veterans and their families who wanted meaningful reforms, mm-hmm. and not just 
partisan conflict. Right. And that's overall been the shift in the Stand Together uh, community overall, right, is, is we've really tried to embrace the, the Frederick Douglass um, work with anyone to do good and, mm-hmm. and no one to do bad. Right. Um, and, and by doing that, we, we being CVA and our, you know, um, tens of thousands of volunteers around the country, we have accomplished some amazing things that people said were impossible. Mm-hmm. Substantial VA reforms. Um, uh, under the Obama administration, now, now those the Choice Act was not successful, um, uh, largely due to the VA. Um, Talk about the Choice Act for a minute. So right, so the Choice Act was uh, was an attempt to prevent uh, folks dying on on secret waiting lists. Right, mm-hmm. you know, you had a system that provided bonuses for empty waiting lists, right. and you had a bureaucracy that could not provide health care to about eight and a half million people. Right. And so the incentive structure was so poorly built that people would make handwritten waiting lists for senior citizen veterans to get health care. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and often they would pass away from cancers and, and, and other issues um, essentially on, on the down low while people collected bonuses for having empty, empty waiting, waiting lists. lists right. And so, right. so that, that was really where CVA, I think, first got engaged um, and saw an opportunity to bring people together um, to, in that case, fight for the, the health care access and quality that, that veterans were promised right. in exchange for their service. Right. And, uh, and, and that, was, that was successful. There were barriers uh, that, that kept the program from succeeding. And then uh, with the VA Mission Act under the last administration, mm-hmm. um, uh, really a lot of those hurdles were crossed and, and just – We've seen so much amazing change, even in the VA. Mm-hmm. Um, now that now that veterans are able to, when the VA can't can't provide them the services they need to treat right. their service connected issues, um, they can access community health care. Right, uh, and and that's um, that's just been fantastic. But but that is something that people said was impossible. You know, right. the, the VA has got yeah, the right. largest union um, in you know of any agency organization in the country. And, and just nothing can change, nothing can change, nothing can change. Right. And we showed, we demonstrated that when we engage the grassroots, when we reach out to people, not as partisans, but mm-hmm. as problem solvers, mm-hmm. um, while maintaining that principled North Star, right, um, that, that we, can, we can achieve major reforms right. in the government where it's needed. Right. It's just fantastic. No, and I agree. And it's tactical and it's real. And, and just so the audience understands, the way the VA is set up is there's different hospitals covering different regions. And these facilities are such that if you live in that region, that's where you're supposed to drive to. That could be a multi-hour drive for some veterans, many of whom are oh, older. It was, I mean, you had the, I, I'm trying, it might have been like, the, they called it like the Phoenix, it was like the Phoenix 600, no, Scottsdale 600 or something where like, you know, my, my grandpa retired down at Tucson and like he to get it to go to a dental appointment, mm-hmm. he had to drive 550 miles round trip. It's crazy. That's it's insane. That's insane. It's insane. And it, yes, and what you're talking about is working towards. And I know you're talking about first steps. And I, I do think there's room to continue to expand upon this. I know the current administration is unlikely to be immediately. I'm not counting it out, right? Because right? I hope we can continue to make the progress. But nonetheless. Um, the idea here is that as you open up the opportunity to go out on town to receive care, you're going to make you're going to put more veterans in a better situation. 
I also personally think, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, that yes, you can look at probably immense cost savings too as you move more to this model. Sure. Than and you incentivize the mm-hmm. VA to uh, to place patient care first, mm-hmm. which is what we expect of any other healthcare, healthcare system. provider. Right. right. And I, you know, and I think I think the the big change where the resistance came was the 2016 election, where. You know, prior to that, I mean, prior to that, Bernie Sanders was one of the loudest voices for VA reform. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think in, in 2016, um, they realized that uh, that reform, you know, admitting that there were serious systemic failures in the VA right. was highlighting the issues with the idea of, of things like Medicare for all, right? Government-run health care. Yeah. Right. And, right. It's, and it's, and you know... It's okay that the government can't run healthcare effectively, yeah. <laughs> right? That's that. That's it's okay as long as you're not advocating for government to run healthcare. <laughs> right, right. And so, but but you know, largely, um, you know, since these reforms, uh, we just did another major round of polling uh, with uh, with YouGov. Um, you know, 87 percent of veterans and military families support VA care outside of the VA, right? Access to those right. to those specialty clinics and primary cares and urgent care is the biggest one. Okay. Um, you know, uh, being able to go to your Walgreens for an urgent care appointment instead of having to kill a day, you know, driving to Milwaukee. Guys up in the seventh congressional district, yep. they have to they had to drive to Minneapolis That's insane. for urgent care. Right. Uh, it's just and it was unacceptable. And I, I don't want to get too far out of turn here, but I do believe that stats will show that urgent care is a great alternative to people going to emergency rooms. It can actually be more cost-effective over time. 100%. can lead to quick solutions even and keep from tying up general practitioners and scheduled right. appointments. And So, yeah, what we're talking about is what everybody wants out of health care, which is high quality and convenience and availability. Better outcomes. And better outcomes and ideally at a more efficient cost. I think do think there's a lot, there's a lot of ground to cover um, in terms of VA healthcare. Right now, we're focused on implementation and access to the VA Mission Act, right? We want to ensure what happens with, for example, the Choice Program, which is where a lot of small community clinics got stiff. They never got paid. um, And so they stopped seeing veteran okay. uh, veterans uh, for services. So we want to ensure that that doesn't happen. We want to assume that arbitrary policy qualifiers aren't added or retracted. We just want to make sure this program has the opportunity to succeed. Uh, because again, the veteran community supports this, right. and and actually, since this VA Mission Act has happened, the opinion of the qual- of the quality of the VA system overall has mm-hmm. gone up nine percentage mm-hmm. points. So so when right. the VA can send you to these private clinics, um, people's opinion of the VA and how they receive other VA services goes up. Right. Um, so it's a win win for. For something for patient patient centric uh, healthcare, what we're pushing for here is take a clear eyed look at the limitations of government run healthcare. The VA is an example of some of those limitations from my perspective, and you have to be honest about that if you want to actually improve the system. And the argument is not immediately do away with every VA hospital. The argument is let's open it up and let's let people make economic and sensible choices with both their time and money and their health. And I think you'll allow the system to play out a bit, and then we can make more strategic changes as we go forward. Now, again, if your goal is to control all of American healthcare within government, I understand why people just flat out refuse to hear that argument. Right. But our our understanding, anecdotally, as veterans, which both you and I are, and just to look at the statistics and what people are happy about, all say that getting away from a monolithic government-run operation 
is for the best, for the long term, for the country, for the vets, for everybody. Yeah. And this this is a great first step that I know CBA was involved in pushing forward. It's not done, but it's a process. Um, and we kind of dove right into it. So I want to come I want to come up a little bit. Sure. I want to talk two things. I want to get to CBA's like broader mission and it's kind of like core it's it's core principles. And also to uh, before we do that, just give us a bit about your veteran history and sure. your background. Um, so United States Army. Um, I won't it? hold it against you. <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, yeah, thankfully my wife, who's Navy, doesn't yeah. either. Um, so I uh, enlisted in two thousand five, mm-hmm. and um, I came into the Army as an interrogator. Did my first uh, deployment in the 2009 surge to the Kandahar province okay. uh, with 2nd Infantry Division. It's a um, shitty place. Yeah. No, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was It was a hard, that was a hard tour. Yeah. And, um, but it gave me a lot of perspective, you know, and I think it gave me a lot of grit. And, um, you know, I was just able to serve with some amazing people who did amazing things and just the most impossible situations day in and day out. Um, Where in Kandahar? So uh, Argandab River Valley, uh, okay. Kandahar City, uh, and then the, the last probably half of my tour was in um, Boldak on the Pakistani border. Okay. Um, I was in Maywan for a while. Yeah. And I, Kandahar City is a place. It's a place. I wasn't there long. I was yeah. there for a few days on the way in and the way out. And, man, I'll tell you, I mean, it's a cliche now. Everybody says it, but bar scene from Star Wars comes to mind. Yeah, just a hodgepodge collection of strangeness and yes, it's it was very wild yeah. west then. I mean, we were yeah. essentially replace you know we were replacing um, the unit that I went with, Fifth Striker Brigade was replacing all of these NATO forces who had been essentially somewhat hands off. Yeah, in their you know in their um, security their of the, yeah their approach right. to the area. Right. Um, uh, you know, and, and we kind of took our eye off of Afghanistan after yep. the Iraq invasion, and and the the Taliban regrew, um, expanded. So we were supposed to go reclear that, um, but it was uh you know we had forty two uh, soldiers killed, um, over three hundred fifty uh, amputees and and casualties, and it was um uh, it was a pretty harsh tour. Probably about twenty six trucks, um, lot you know. Blown up. Yeah, to, yeah, to, right. Totally destroyed. Um, then, that's, no, go ahead. Oh yeah. So, and I and I compare that then to my to my second tour with an with an MI battalion, which I affectionately refer to as Pogadishu. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it was it was wild. It was wildly different, despite being essentially in the same area. Okay. Um, it was. It's just interesting, you know. But each, each, I think, from my first tour, each one of our battalions was replaced with an entire brigade combat team. Um, essentially because of what my unit went through. So for our listeners, it means they, they're upsizing the units that they're dropping in because right. you guys are undersized relative to the amount of ground you had to cover. Is that fair? Right, yeah, and, and, and the amount of casualties sustained. Right. You know, we, I think we had, a, we had one of our infantry battalions was had lost enough people and vehicles that they were, um, uh, what's the term, uh, combat? Ineffective. Ineffective, yep. you know, and yeah. so... yeah. Um, uh, and to be tactical about it, that literally means like you can't pair together unit sizes to go out to patrol sufficiently right. to actually control the AO. So then you're just sending people right. on, on even more do, uh, dangerous missions right. that you don't know. And, you know, all these guys are, <clears throat> you know, traumatized and, yep. and concussed. And, um, yeah. But, you know, my, my, my second tour, my second tour was different. Um, I was an intel unit. And it also, 
I started to see a different kind of side of the conflict, right? Which mm-hmm. was a lot more of the the uh, army infighting, mm-hmm. the DOD infighting, mm-hmm. um, where there were times, you know, and, and I admittedly, like, I, I went on, I volunteered for that second tour. I turned down my dream job in the army, and I, I volunteered for, for that second Afghanistan deployment. Okay. I don't know if it was like a looking for revenge or redemption thing, right? Right. Um, but... Uh, but I didn't find it, and and very often I found that we that we're spending more time fighting with other uh, Department of Defense organizations um, over territory and missions and right. and resources. Um, came back, got out of the army because of that tour. Uh, left the army, came back. What to year was that? 2013. So I'd done okay. eight years. Um, okay. Came out during the sequester, so they refused to print my medical records even because they didn't want to run the printers. Uh, Seriously? Oh, yeah. That it was, was their response. Right. Yeah. So, wow. you know, I came back and uh, decided wow. to, you know, reconnect with my home state, uh, my hometown of Milwaukee. Yeah. And um, after my first year of U- at UW-Milwaukee, I was, I was getting frustrated with how uh, veterans were, in my opinion, being exploited for their GI Bill dollars at the uni- in the university system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, at the same time, I got called back up, and they asked me to go back um, to serve on a strategic special mission unit. The Army a, did. The Army did, yeah. as a uh, civilian uh, intelligence officer. Okay. Um, so, I, so I did that for a year. Uh, and that was really a big turning point for me as well, where I, I think I was finally at this level where I expected the biz, big picture to exist, <laughs> the grand strategy to be, to be <laughs> yeah. Ike about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the you had the, every right the master plan, that. and right. and and now I, I get to be a part of that, and it didn't right. exist there. And you know, and, and like I said, I, I think I was also coming to the, the kind of realization that I that like I had some issues that I, I needed to address. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked to my wife, and I, it was supposed to be a three year assignment. Um, and I, I talked to my wife, and I, I just said, I, I like I can't, I don't think I can do this for three years. Um, and I came back. I decided to. Uh, I was a business major originally. Mm-hmm. I decided to change to political science because I, I was like, well, I could, I can, I can bitch about the problems at the UW system, um, or I'm a problem solver, or I could figure out how to how to so, how to solve them. Okay. Um, and that was actually my my entrance into into politics, okay. into public policy was. Uh, was was really trying to nail down where these issues. You know, I spent weekends drive. You know, I drive to Madison. I drive to D.C. Um, to where I met my uh, my representative Glenn Grothman. Um, to where I met um, you know Senator Alberta Darling and Dale Cuyenga. Just these great folks who empowered me to solve these problems. And right. you know, like so, it was like a credits thing. I I was you know UW Milwaukee advertised itself as accepting federal transfer credits. Okay. Uh, and then I, you know, I was a senior Intel guy, a bunch of cool guy schools. So I had like a hundred something credits. So right. This is great. I'm going right. to breeze through college in two years yeah. and it's going to be awesome. And they gave me four or five ed credits. That's, that's the sum total? <laughs> total. Okay. Yeah, there has to be some mistake, you know, and, and, uh, and they just, they just refused. And so I, uh-huh. but I but managed to get it fixed. Um, you know, got a law passed compelling the school to find ways to, to actually award those credits to everybody. I mean, it opened up like 40,000 credit hours at UW-Milwaukee alone to, oh, to current veteran students. That's great. Awesome. And, and that really, I think, kind of kind of propelled me to like, well, may, maybe this is a place where I can I can continue to serve the veteran community. Right. Um, 
Uh, and then and then with the VA Mission Act, um, I brought my student veteran coalition um, to, to fight for the VA Mission Act. Okay. That's how I connected with CVA. Okay. Um, and then just prior to graduation, I was, I was actually at the United Nations mm-hmm. uh, for a summer program, and I met the Afghan ambassador. Very surreal and interesting, and, you know, we were talking about all these issues. He invited me to be his uh, special guest to the United Nations Security Council Afghanistan War Debate. Okay. We, you know, which is like, you know, it's like a closed closed door thing. I got to come in there and uh, and, and really listen to all these other countries kind of talk over and past what Afghanistan was asking for in terms of help. Mm-hmm. Um, there just didn't seem to be a lot of interest there. And then I had that trip was cut short because uh, one of my soldiers, one of my protégés, uh, was, was killed in Somalia okay. June 2018, um, which was, uh, you know, and as a guy who's also out, I think at some point we, like, maybe it's a coping mechanism, but we just, like, tell ourselves that most of our guys are gone. They're all out of the Army or Marine Corps, right, right. and so they're safe and it's okay and we don't have to worry anymore, Yeah, right? There won't be any more funerals. Right. And then, and then, and then one, something happens. Right. Um, and that that really that really grounded me. And then I, I came back and I, I continued. I was going to I was doing pre-law okay. um, at this point um, and I was studying constitutional law and reading about the AUMF, the 2001 AUMF. Um, and then I found that essentially this tiny third of a page document mm-hmm. um, that was a authorization for a punitive campaign in Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm was written essentially in the past tense, had been reimagined and reinterpreted by the past two presidents to cover 40-some countries, including uh, Somalia at the time. Okay. And because of that, my, uh, my friend Alexander, named my son after, um, you know, like his parents didn't have anyone to hold accountable for that because no one had ever voted on it. Right. The war powers has been largely ignored. I mean, one of the one of the one, really one of the three congressional responsibilities: the power to legislate, the power of the purse, and the war powers. Right? They almost never legislate. It's really just the the majority leader legislates. The right. purse has been empty for thirty years, um, and they've ignored the war powers because after the Iraq invasion, I mean, eighty percent of the folks who voted on the Iraq invasion were thrown out of office. Right. And so they said, well. We're not, we don't, we just don't want, we don't want to deal with that. We don't want that accountability. And so they've refused to check the executive on their war powers. And Republicans raised this issue under Obama over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was thrilled after his second term, I was ready to see those uh, guys and gals take action Mm -hmm. to remedy this war power issue. And they didn't. And it switched. And then suddenly the Democrats were against this. Right. Were against this, this extra constitutional conflict. Um, and so, so that's, that's the crux. And that, that's, what, that's how I ended up working for CVA, is that, is that this was an issue that was on their radar. Right. That after the VA Mission Act, this is, this is another impossible thing that everyone says nobody can fix. Right. Because Congress doesn't care and they don't want to be held accountable. Right. And they want to be able to point a finger at whoever's president. Um, But at the end of the day, 
with especially with the volunteer military, mm-hmm. um, this is a crisis. Uh, it's a moral crisis. It's a fiscal crisis. It's a constitutional crisis. It's a security crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, constitutionally, um, the president manages the military in a time of conflict. But the Congress has to authorize that. Right. And accepting a president just because he or she is in your party, accepting their extra constitutional conflicts is problematic. I mean, the one of the indisputable reasons the United States came out on top of all of these major global conflicts, the, both world wars, is that right. we did not get engaged until it was absolutely unavoidable. We didn't. We and waited was, until the yeah. last minute. Well, and it was reflected by the, the votes of the United States Congress to initiate conflict and to fully, fully fund it and then fully get the American people behind it. And commit. Right. And, and everybody voted. There was, you know, one, one nay vote. Mm-hmm. The gal who said, uh, you know, she was voting no for military moms, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and everybody voted to be held accountable for these powerful decisions. And I understand, I empathize with the idea that congressional leaders don't want to be held accountable for these conflicts. And I, and that's, that's all, I feel bad for them because that's a heavy weight. I don't. But it's their job. <laughs> well, I was going to say you it's, shouldn't feel It's bad. their job and it's what they're paid. I, yes. I, I empathize. Right. 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 I, I recognize the difficulty of it, but then don't do the job if it's too much. And that's not, that's not hyperbole. It's, it is, um, I think the American public had a better understanding that we need people in Congress who understand what exactly the powers that they have over families, American families, to put them into harm's way and what that really means. We've obviously got, I mean, you'll know this probably better than me, but one of, if not the lowest percentages of veterans in Congress we've had throughout modern American oh, history. Oh, yeah. Right? It's tiny. Yes. And so already you're, you're lacking that perspective. And what you're pushing for here is saying, like, look, at the very least, people need to be held account, held to account for these decisions that they're making. And quite particularly with both the latter half of Iraq and then now certainly in Afghanistan, we have been regularly committing American lives to this mission with nobody talking about it right. at all. And, and the executive even has essentially deferred to this <clears throat> bureaucratic make-work Defense Department, State Department, agency system, right. right, that has continued to redefine what it is we're doing there. And the thing is, at the end of the day, the troops on the ground continue to do the things that are asked of them. They bleed right. for it. They die for it. Right. They, there's been a million life-changing disabilities in the Afghan war so far, and just, on, just with U.S. forces, right? Um, trillions of dollars spent. Thousands of lives lost. And this this was a righteous endeavor from the get-go. And I, I encourage anyone listening to pull up the 2001 AUMF and read it. It's tiny. It's less than a third of a page. And it says, essentially, punish the Taliban, mm-hmm. kill al-Qaeda, and it's a spanking, right? It's, it's right. a – it is a right. – uh, you know, we gave, the, we gave them the opportunity to give us bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and they refused. Um but it, it is what it is it's written in the past tense. It's not a it's not a blank check for a forever war right. that it's been it's been reimagined into. And at the end of the day, if our best and brightest, if our most patriotic, if our if our kids from the inner city who are trying to reinvent their lives right. and, and and start over and, and get an education and serve their country and get a free ticket out of some of these 
these these places that are just awful, uh, if we're going to sacrifice these people, if we're going to put their lives on the line, the Congress owes us a rigorous public debate, mm-hmm. and they owe us a by name vote on Absolutely. on where we're going to go bleed for these things unequivocally. Um, and I mean the the polling data. So this is our second. This is rolling into our second year of this campaign, of the Ending Endless Wars campaign, which is largely focused on Afghanistan because that's the document that's been used to Leveraged justify, to right, to justify all this stuff. Right. And and we're not we're not anti-war. Mm-hmm. We truly believe that a strong defense and a capable, well-trained, well-funded, well-equipped military is critical to preserving our way of life and, and our freedoms. Is. And it is right. indisputably. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and that's also what makes us unique, right, is that is that no one has touched this effort outside of some kind of fringy left uh, anti-war groups historically. This is the first time that a nonpartisan organization has built a coalition of left to right folks. I mean, my my volunteers, I got volunteers who talk about, you know, who talk to each other about their 2015 primary votes. You know, there's Bernie and Ted Cruz, right? <laughs> I mean, it, the, really, everyone agrees on this issue. Um, our first year of this campaign, public polling uh, increased 13% in support of withdrawal from Afghanistan. This year was another 10%. Um, it's 80% of the general public uh, with over two-thirds of the veteran community. Um, you know, less than 20% of people uh, support staying there or increasing our um, our forces. The majority of those folks I've met, mm-hmm. and the, and I don't mean this disparagingly, sure. right? But they're currently commissioned military officers and infantry guys who haven't deployed, and you know, and I and I get that because I, you know, I woke up late for school, so I was going to skip the whole day on September 11, two thousand one turn on the TV and I watched this, that second plane hit the tower. I watched people jump mm-hmm. and like I decided that 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 I was going to go kill whoever was responsible for this. Right. And so I, I and I and I totally I feel it in my heart the want to go fight for what's right. But we are killing the grandchildren of the people who started this. Yeah. That is that is a Hatfield and McCoy losing situation and as you well know our proximity to this hotspot, surrounded by adversaries, has given them the ability to cheaply attack us. For sure, Iran, the Iranian government, our frenemies the, in right. Pakistan, right? Um, the right. Russians, the Chinese. Like we are, a, we are a sitting duck. Our people, our soldiers, are a sitting duck. And these are not, you know, hundred thousand dollar a year Harvard grad think tank guys in D.C. These are. 18 grand a year PFCs with a mouthful of dip sitting on a folding chair in a guard shack who are getting who are getting shot at and blown up uh, because it's an opportunistic target for our adversaries. Right. And uh, additionally, I mean, if we were not there, this is a this is a country that is in their backyard. The costs of stabilizing Afghanistan, the incentive to stabilize Afghanistan uh, would be on them if we were not there. Right. So we're spending trillions of dollars. We're losing folks to stabilize a country for our adversaries' benefit while they launch rockets and roadside bombs and target our people. At very low cost. Yes, financial and and their own human life, too. You know, the whole point of us having a trillion-dollar Navy 
is to project force. Right. It's because anywhere on planet Earth, we can have Harrier jets and Navy SEALs sinking things and Intel guys doing their stuff mm -hmm. anywhere on planet Earth, right? Uh, we have that capability. But instead, we're forced the Navy SEALs to play Green Beret back to back to back to back. Right. And we are, we are burning out our, more, our most irreplaceable resource, which is these exceptional people. Right. It also takes Americans. them away from their book writing deals, too. Yes, right. Every Navy SEAL I know <laughs> will appreciate that. Right. And I will send it to them. There's a lot of hair them. product to sell out there. And <laughs> who's going to do it? No, I, you know, I, but, you know, this is, I guess, the message that I often have for the, um, for conservatives who are maybe like myself, pro -mil extremely pro-military, mm -hmm. not anti-war, Right. Um, and find themselves in a hawkish position is at some point when we find ourselves alongside an advers a real adversarial force mm -hmm. like China or something, right? do we want well-trained, well-equipped, well-rested Navy SEALs who are, who are competent in their job of, of sinking boats underwater? Mm -hmm. Or do we want guys who are, have four traumatic brain injuries, who are on their 15th tour, who right. have six marriage who are who are struggling to stay alive and dealing with substance abuse and suicidal issues and like we are wearing down the thing that we can't outsource to Raytheon, right? Yeah, no, it's it's hundred percent right. And I mean at a meta level, and feel free to disagree, but I, I mean what you're arguing for is be strategic and be clear in what your strategy is. By the way, that's not giving away the, uh, the the key to victory to the enemy. Right. Right? You can say my strategic objective is the destruction of the Taliban and their capability to perpetrate harm. Yeah. Period. Right? That's a strategy. Now, within that, the American people and those that have signed up to fight should understand that strategy like that. And I think that you're making the argument, yes, that should come from the commander-in-chief. That should come from members of Congress who voted for it. They should all be able to say that. Now we can drop down into internal public discussions about are we achieving this strategy? Like, I... I would say that whether it was the people you're serving with, the people I'm serving with in Afghanistan and Iraq, many times it was hard for the young Marines and soldiers that I'm working with to be able to say that is the strategic objective that I'm risking my life for. It was a hard question, and I'm, and I'm not going to out the guy. Um, it was a hard question that I asked a three-star general mm -hmm. after a close call my third tour. And he said, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Can you tell me precisely what it is we're doing here? Yeah. A very fair question. A very right. fair question. Yeah, right. You know. Right. Uh, and he said, you know, we are we are protecting each other and our people and our stuff. And we are spinning our wheels until the American people have decided we've had enough of this. Well, he was honest with you. He was on, he was on which I will forever yeah. appreciate because right. it's what brought me home. And right. like any other tour, like, you know, you know, you never know what could have, would have happened. Right. So right. it brought me home and it got me where I am today. Um, right. But also, you know, it was very hard for me to leave deployment and leave being a intelligence officer because, you know, I'm this invisible line of defense to disrupt enemy networks and attacks and ambushes and take right. out, take out the, the baddest bad guys and, and to walk away from that was, in my for me, it was hard, especially as a guy already suffering from some survivor's guilt from my first deployment. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult for me to say, okay, well, I'm just going to let whatever happens happen. Right. 
Um, and so then, so then this opportunity to bring people together mm-hmm. to fight for essentially that constitutional North Star that right. we that we talked about, and right? That, that mean joining CBA. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right, um, right. To to bring people together to to really try to achieve that, to remedy where these institutions have been broken, right? Um, was was my way of continuing my service and my and I can protect people by making sure that if they're going to go somewhere and be at risk, mm-hmm. that there's someone to hold accountable for if it was a bad decision, right? Um, and we're not there yet. No. Well, you're you're making arguments that I think are very important. And our our at no better friend, our one of our key policy pillars is that a strong and strategic national defense can stop wars before they start. Which again, is this idea like that is not an anti-war position. It's not an anti-armed conflict. It is a recognition that that will always be on the spectrum of diplomacy. The question is, can you achieve your real diplomatic objective without the institution right. of armed conflict? And I personally believe that uh, conservatives need to articulate that. Um, here again, I know you're working with a very broad coalition. Yeah. Our job is to be able to articulate, and no better friend, like why do conservatives believe what they do to, to enlarge that movement. And part of that I do believe is saying, look, we, we do not advocate for uh, armed conflict at the drop of a hat, quite, quite to the contrary. We believe right. you must be prepared. We believe you must be strategic, but that includes you're kind of talking about like economic forcing mechanisms when you say make the Congress vote right. on uh, the execution of force in war. And you, you by forcing them to do that, you make them think about their strategy. You make them articulate to the American people what they believe and why. And, and invest in it themselves. Put in skin conflict. in the game where right. guys like you and I and the friends we've served with and the friends we've lost – right. Have not only put skin in the game, but they have they've they've sacrificed everything. Yeah, and it's is you think about um, literally parents, wives, children, husbands, like who uh, have lost so much, right? Like you, it's never going to be easy to have that conversation that goes. I was saying, but boy, I never want to be in that position where I can't articulate why this was undertaken in the first place right. and why we continued to do it. Which I guess brings me to one, the number one pushback I get is, is something that, that I want to address and I try to address every time I'm, I'm talking about this issue. And that is the, if we don't stay, everything that was lost was for nothing, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's fallacy. The sacrifices of heroic Americans who have lost their lives, taking the fight to the enemy and protecting each other and protecting innocent people mm-hmm. – um, Nothing, no strategic failure, congressional impotence, that has nothing to do, that takes nothing away from their heroism and their sacrifice for their country, their family, and their comrades, right? But it's this kind of cheap rhetoric pitch that has convinced so many conservatives that, like, we got to stay there. It's like the, we got to fight them over there so we don't fight them here. That's the most ridiculous, that's the most ridiculous statement ever. I mean... You know, 9-11, and we can, be, we can be frank about this, this was a domestic security failure, right? This was a failure of, of these very expensive, very invasive agencies to, to, to do their job and work together because they were too busy competing over resources, right? And that's this what the 9-11 Commission discovered. It's why we created the, the ODNI, right? right. Um, it's why we created Homeland Security. We sacrificed a big chunk of our Fourth Amendment rights 
to remedy a domestic security failure. And so if if the if the if the we have to fight them over there to not fight them over here, well then why are we why did we do that? Why have we spent a trillion dollars on the on the TSA and and Homeland Security? Why have we it's just it's it's a it, they're bad arguments and they're things that have trapped conservatives into a terrible mental model when it comes to military conflict. And I, I understand your point there, and I'd build it out even maybe a bit further. You may not agree, but I think if the goal again get back to strategic objective is the destruction of whether it's the Taliban or Al Qaeda or ISIS or whatever the case is, destroy their capability to perpetrate harm, specifically to the American people and their allies. Now, okay, operationally, you engage in these conflicts in order to achieve the strategic objective. I would argue, on some level, we of course achieved that, and we we of course. Yeah, I mean, in the first in the first correct. 120 days. Yes, exactly. Our argument, and again, not putting words in your mouth, is okay. Now step back and say, is what you're doing today furthering that strategic objective, right. and at what cost, and what's the cost? What's the cost benefit right. uh, analysis of what we're doing today? So the argument is not that lives that have been lost and commitments that have been made were in vain. The right. argument is we believe it could have been done better. We believe it could have been done with both a more keen eye on what that strategy was, which would have led to greater efficiency in how we did it, and it could have saved certainly more American lives and dollars and all these other things. But, um, but that is not a case to say that, again, what the people that we served with were doing on the ground was not affecting change. It was. Right. The argument is, how can you do this better? How do you make sure you don't make the same mistakes again in the right. future? It requires, again, it requires leadership. It does. It requires leadership. It requires leadership who are invested in that vision that our founding fathers had. Right. And who appreciate how every time in history that's been ignored or right. eschewed, we've been unsuccessful militarily. And when it's been followed, we've been successful. Right. Um, and that that's a very big picture broad strokes, um, you know, comparison. But right. I, uh, you know, look at look at the tremendous pressure we put the Iranian government under mm -hmm. through our student exchange program, <laughs> through literally just exposing right. <laughs> tens of thousands of Iranian teenagers to young adults to what a free society looks like every year. Mm -hmm. Right. There, there, we have endless tools of trade, uh, you know, commerce, uh, industry, education. We have Tons of tools to utilize um, to keep that military option as the last resort, not right. the first step. Absolutely. Um, and 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 I, you know, we look at it like in the future, these AUMFs have to have a sunset. They have to have, you know, we think the AUMF painted a very clear picture about what had to be done. But even if you argue that it was unaccomplished until they killed Bin Laden. Well, once that was accomplished, then it should have been done, and we should have left. Yeah, and when you say sunset, you mean literally writing into uh, the initial legislation and the order, basically, it has to be renewed by either an such date. an event or such a date. Right. Congress has to reissue it. And, they just have to vote on it, man. And anyone who comes back and says, well, that's not doable because then Congress would be voting every 20... Well, no, we're not arguing for that. Sure. You're, you're saying that in a reasonable interval, or you could even tie... It to the strategic objective in one sure. way, shape, or form, using the right language. These are all a bunch of lawyers. They should be able to KPIs, right? We're talking right. right. Yeah, we talk. You know, right. right. Um, achieve the following. Achieve right. the following metrics of success. And but I think you know the the biggest the biggest dilemma is just that we changed we changed the idea of this from being a punishment to being, um, you know, Germany. 
right. where we're going or you know Italy or Japan where we're going to rebuild them in a better more free image um, but the American people never got to decide if if they believe that that was in our national interest or even doable or even or even doable and that yeah. you know and that's a whole nother thing is that yeah. like I said at the, I, I sat in this this war debate you know and and I watched this ambassador talk about like you know we need like I, we need to be able to train doctors and medics and clinicians and this uh, other country mm-hmm. I was like we're gonna rebuild that hydroelectric dam and he's like they've blown it up twice that sounds so expensive. We don't even have people who can run it. Can we? But we need medical care. Right. The infant mortality rate is skyrocketing. Right. Like, like there are other more pressing things, and they're just like, yeah. But that dam is going to be sweet, though. Yeah. And you bet their contractors are going to get paid. <laughs> yeah. Too. Right. Right. And you know, so I just, at the end of the day, right? This our own vision of self determination mm-hmm. for the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when we're engaged in these conflicts, we often find ourselves inadvertently denying that to other people. Right. Maybe Afghanistan's not ready to be an American, you know, blue jeans and apple pie society. Maybe they maybe their vision is different, and that's okay. Um, but we can't force that upon people. It doesn't work. It's a big part of my education of my deployments is just that. I think it's important. I think it's an important perspective for you and others and myself and others to share that there are limitations to what people want in their own society and their own individual lives. And at the end of the day, I think where we definitively got off track and you, you bring this home with the War Powers Act is that, yes, the strategic objective, if it's, if it's to destroy the ability of an entity to create harm, that's one thing. If you get into the concept of trying to create a society um, in your image or close to, now it's a very different strategic objective and the limitations are enormous. And they can literally start with willpower. In other words, the local population saying neither good nor bad, right? I may disagree with them, does not have the interest in putting in the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to build that society. And you're going to run up against a brick wall every time you try to make them if they don't have that natural inclination. But And I think, though, that if that was the intent, nation building, mm-hmm. then we would have had a rigorous public debate where all of the folks who are invested in the in the history of Afghanistan and it, you know, in, in all these things could have articulated that that would not be possible. Right. And right. and we could have avoided it if it had come to a vote and a debate. Which well, is why the system's built that way. And that's it. And I think, in, yes, and the cost would have been, and the limitations would have been made clear to the American people. The cost would have been clear. And I'm reminded of any number of conversations I had with local nationals in both these countries that would have told you, and they're anecdotal, right, but yet would have told you there's a sizable portion of the population that literally has no interest. And my own view of Afghanistan is such that, like, it, it at best could be a loose uh, federal uh, system, meaning a very weak central government governed primarily by regions, right? which more or less align to tribes that have you know, existed for thousands of years. It's essentially how it works right now. Anyway. Which is right. right. Yeah. But if we had accepted that from day one and said, this is imperfect and it's terrible, and there's many things about it that make us very uncomfortable and unhappy, um, but yet at the same time, this may offer the best self-governance model for these people and on their own choice, and frankly, may create less strife. And fundamentally may allow them to control their own security in a way that they can if they understand that we leave them alone if they exterminate the Taliban I know plenty of them 
that would take a, up the objective of ex- exterminating the Taliban right? because they get left alone. And it, it sometimes is that simple. Um, it, it isn't always, right. but it can be. And again, I think this requires more tacit admission about our, our limitations. I too have sat down, I mean, look, I've sat down with wonderful one, two, three stars and who get it all, um, but I've seen a lot that were so far wrapped around the axle of like, what are we doing over the next six weeks, right? Like, what, what are the metrics we're trying to hit on these six-week intervals that you're like, whoa, you are the person that's supposed to be pointed upwards saying, hey, sir, I need more in terms of like what I'm really trying to do here. Your vision, uh, yeah, uh, vision, purpose, and guidance. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of the thing, right? Yeah. I um, I watched over the weekend, my son uh, and I watched um, American Sniper. So I have watched... I think that is the only movie from our generation combat. Yeah. That's it. Not, I, I haven't seen any. I'm, I'm right there with that's you. That's the one. Yeah, okay. That is the one. And I did it because uh, I have actually great respect for Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker. I think his treatment of the military has always been pretty honest and good. Oh, yeah. And I think that he eschews all the bullshit of Hollywood. <laughs> politics and yep. all of it, right? Ho- yep. So I thought if anyone could do this, um, probably it's him, right? Like to like put somewhat of a lens on it. And certainly... You know, I made a joke about the seals before. I like the kids' seals, so there's right. there's a, there's some of the seal nonsense in this for sure. Um, and at times, it makes Marines look uh, uh, it, an inaccurate depiction of Marines, to be sure. I'll hold Clint's feet to the fire on that. But boy, there's a lot about it that shows the 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 insanity of what the enemy was doing to their own people and how horrible it was. At points, I can look at scenes of that movie and I can smell the smells of that place. And, and that, that's an Iraq. This movie? is Iraq. Right. This is okay. Iraq. And, um, and, I, and I've never been. I've, I've only done Afghanistan. Yeah. No, this trip. is yeah. Iraq. It also smells bad. Yeah. Um, just to let you, <laughs> just to let you know, depending on what corner of the country right. that you're in. And uh, what I think, what I think it does bring home for those in the audience that have not seen it, and why I think it's probably in my opinion, the only one of these movies that are worth it, admittedly I haven't seen the others, is that um, there are moments in these scenes where you see the the troops on the ground immersed in like these super detailed conversations I know you've been a part of, of like who links to who and who's caught up to who, and but more like a mafia type analysis that you'd expect the FBI to do, right? Right. And it's at those moments that, yeah, that that is part of a counterinsurgency that you kind of feel the futility of it, of okay, so yeah, we got it mapped out. We've done our targeting. We know who's who. We know whose cousin is who and this and this and this. And tell me again, how does this play out such that we achieve this strategic objective within a reasonable amount of time in the right way? Or are we trying to deconstruct a society and make it perfect and then rebuild it in our image? Yeah. And yeah, man. And, and, you know, like I said, this is, we're, we're killing the grandkids of the guys who started this fight. And, and if nothing else, I think that demonstrates that the course we're on is not going to achieve the outcomes we think it will. Right. Right. Simply put. Yeah. Um, and so, and I mean, in this, you know, when we talked about some of the fiscal impacts of this, you know, billions and billions and trillions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, so, you know, that ties into CVA's third pillar, um, which is, you know, throws back, goes back to that, that Eisenhower, our national, you know, our national debt is an inherent part of our national security. Mm-hmm. Our ability to our our ability to project force is essentially covered with cash, right? Yeah. And and a and a massive ballooning national debt undermines that drastically. Absolutely. Um, and so it, as a part of that, you know, we want 
we want smarter defense spending. Um, you know, and, and I not can to bad, any not, money get cut out of the Pentagon? Oh my gosh! So, right. Well, that's <laughs> dude. That's the thing. You know that it's it's such a you know procurement. You know as well as I do. Yeah. Procurement's broken. You know, right. I um, manpower's broken. You know, and my wife's Navy. I I truly, and this this physically pains me to say, mm-hmm. I think that the Navy is the most important service. Uh, the will, f- on the record, I will disagree, but go ahead. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, you know, I mean, well, you guys were part of it. The, uh, the, you know, I mean, the founding fathers understood that, right? Is that the, the Navy never needed to be reauthorized because it was critical to maintaining safe and free uh, shipping lanes. Right. Um, and 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 I, I think that's been demonstrated. But, I mean, right. look, but projection I mean, of power, like you talked about. 100%. But, guess, again, right. the Navy crashed a trillion dollars worth of ships in a year and a half. In our most critical area, the South China Sea, because they cannot find enough $18,000 a year E3s to fill Wacha. Mm-hmm. That indicates, it, with the highest defense spending of any nation at any time in recorded history, right. that indicates a problem of right. resource allocation yeah. that needs to be addressed, but we can't do it while we're in this perpet forever war. Right. Because everybody... Right gets that OCO funding boost. Everybody is competing for resources mm-hmm. and, and everyone has lost sight of what their true strategic mission is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've got to get back to that. And, and likewise with the, with the VA, you know, with the VA is the second largest, most expensive agency. Um, and they struggle to provide healthcare to 9 million people now. Right. And, you know, they, there is a, stunningly beautiful VA hospital in Green Bay. I don't know if you've been up there. I have not been. I mean, Green Bay, yes, not right. that hospital. Half of it's been right. covered in plastic for five years. It's not used. It's okay. gorgeous. It was expensive. Allocation of resources and the use of resources, right? You know, we fought to get the first audit done of the Pentagon ever uh, since, like, 2000. CVA did. CVA did. Okay. Um, and I, some of the results, I think, were – were, were hyperbolically inflated uh, yeah. by by the media. But but it just demonstrated that, I mean, the Defense Department doesn't even know how to track where it's sending its money. Yeah. Big picture. Right. That wouldn't fly in, that wouldn't fly in a, in a mom and pop shop down the street. Right. Wouldn't fly in a Fortune 50 firm. It can't fly with our government. Not when they're spending this much money. Not when it's, you know, we haven't had a year where they haven't spent negative amounts of money. Yeah. Right. 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 And so it, those are issues that need to be addressed. And I and I think that these conflicts, unfortunately, provide a distraction for the people who don't want to fix this because there are lots of people taking immense personal benefit from this. Yeah. On the political side, on the industry side. Um, and, you know, and that's unfortunate. But those are things that need to be corrected. Right. Um, because it's a it's an integral part of our national security. It is. And I think CBA provides an important voice on that and does it with credibility. Right. Because. Part of the problem is a bit of, I mean, it seems to be crazy binary, right? It's either coming from extreme left of like hatred of the military uh, or too much from other quarters of, um, call it fanboying or whatever the case sure. is, but right, like applauding every time and no, right. you know, military worship. Right. There's something in the middle which is adequate respect for a job well done that is dangerous and also too holding the institutions to account so that they're in a better position for. For achieving the mission primarily, then also too, yes, troop welfare because right. that comes after mission achievement. It's that achieve the mission, take care of your troops. Hundred percent. And it's um yeah, so it's important to have an informed group of people who have the credibility who serve themselves so that you're able to 
step in front of these issues where others maybe are uncomfortable doing it at this point, don't feel like they have the perspective they should, and so on. Although, you know, comfort or not, at the end of the day, to the point that we made before, I firmly believe that if you're in Congress and you want to take these votes, right, either get comfortable with it or get out. Right, yeah. right. One and, of the two. And I'll tell you that our greatest tool set to accomplishing these things from the VA Mission Act to, I mean, we delivered 700,000 letters mm-hmm. to President Trump. And like days later, he ordered the Afghan troop withdrawal. Mm-hmm. The things that we do work. And we empower veterans. We empower their families mm-hmm. to share their stories and their personal perspectives on these issues, regardless of of if they were, you know, noners or they were, you know, they never deployed or or they did one tour or they did 15. I mean, right. you know, uh, you know, Joe Kent is uh, I mean, nobody has a resume like this guy. You know, it's uh, 375 Ranger Bat, Green Beret, a uh, bunch of cool guy task forces in mm-hmm. the agency. Like like this guy, I mean, his wife was killed, Shannon Kent, mm-hmm. in, in Syria. Um, she was in Navy Special Warfare. I mean, she was, a, she was a female operator 10 years before people were fighting about female operators, right? right? right. And, you know, and, and he, is, he has used his voice to support this work. Um, but the voice of the, you know, the, the grandma of some kid who's going on his fourth tour, he's an E5, you know, it's like, it's just as valuable. Every single person's contribution is valuable. Right. Um, and, and that is how CVA, CVA is a volunteer driven organization. Mm-hmm. And we really just want to, we'll, we'll, we'll coach vets, we'll help them with their public speaking. We'll, we'll find ways for them to contribute their story and their perspective um, <clears throat> to achieve these policy changes, right. and and I think that we've shown that we can do it, that we can do it successfully, even when everybody says it's impossible. It's an important thing to do. I wanted to ask, um, and it's in keeping with kind of the conversation we've had so far. Do you ever do anything in the? We're talking about direct spend of on defense from the United States government. Do you ever do anything around the space of um, economic development in and amongst? Uh, armed conflict do you ever talk about that or play in that space so like as a policy perspective probably not i mean anecdotally i talk well i mean i talk about the things that i observed in like the state department race to spend money and call it economic development like the usaid stuff is just you know i i watched so i watched the state department drop a hundred million dollars on a shopping mall on highway one in kandahar <laughs> um a guy you know the guy poured an unreinforced concrete slab took the money and ran with and three generations of his family you bet um and that was a win you know like silly stuff like okay well uh well farmers can sell opium for four times what they can sell food <laughs> and so they're not growing food so what we're going to do is we're going to pay them to grow food we're going to pay them what they would make to grow opium to grow food and i'm like all right well i guess that's that's not sustainable but that's a thing it's better than a shopping mall and uh and i'm like all right so we're going to go out and check to make sure they're not growing drugs and they're like well no we're going to pay an afghan to go check that out and i'm like have you have you been out here i mean this this is a survivalist culture yeah you bet it is and so and so what do they do what do they do right they well they these are sustenance farmers I mean, the average lifespan is 55. Most of these, most of these, and I, I do truly love Afghans mm-hmm. as a people. I love their culture. I love, they're, they're hospitable. They're great to strangers. They're just amazing. And most of them spend a very short life mm-hmm. 
trying to feed and take care of however many of their kids make it past 10 years old. That's right. And and that's a, that's a hard life um, as someone who cares about life and treasures right. it deeply. Right. right. That's that's hard. I respect it and I care about it and I want right. it to be better. Right. But at the same point, like we just have to be realistic. Right. And so they're going to grow opium anyway. They're going to take the, the food payment and they're going to go sell the opium and make twice that. And there's still going to be a food shortage. Yeah. Which is insane, because it, yes. because it's a it's a it's a right because all decisions there are made around this eight hundred billion dollar a year gorilla called the United States Department of Defense. Right. We suck all the oxygen out of the room. They can't make decisions that don't involve us. So they don't even know they don't even know what their ideal Afghanistan looks like because mm-hmm. they can't imagine it without us there dumping money and resources and, and weapons and and and. I want them. I want them to achieve whatever the whatever the greatest version of Afghanistan society possible is. I, that's what I want. But I also know that they can't do it with us sitting there right. on their chest. And you have to accept that what they come up with may not be what you're happy with. Totally, but that it might be what they come up with. Might and be what they come up with. It's an important point. Yeah, I remember I got out of um, uh, I got out of the Marine Corps. I was only a few months out of Afghanistan. I went straight to graduate school, which was a culture shock, to put it mildly. And there was a lot of, a lot of tense moments there. And um, I will tell you, I remember I had a professor, and he definitely met well. And he was a former World Bank guy. And uh, I wrote some kind of paper on this, and I said, look, there's just massive limitations to the ability to conduct actual economic development in the midst of armed conflict because of what all your anecdotes basically lay out, which is high propensity towards corruption, towards uh, just simple misallocation of funds, just sloppiness that results in hundreds of millions of dollars, ultimately probably ending up in the hands of the enemy, not adversaries, but literally the person who's trying to kill you. Right. Which is to say nothing of like handing over literally billions of dollars to the Iranian government as they also try to kill you. So take a step back and you look at this and it is literally insane in so many different respects. And then there's a separate issue which i think also too pulls back to what we're talking about which is is this in keeping with what we're trying to do in the first place and yes and that's your your questions about what does the the average afghan view as as the society they want to live in how are they ever going to get there if we're pouring in money that completely remakes their markets in a way that doesn't even make sense and there is um yeah, part of this is accepting limitations. Again, not to beat the dead horse, but it gets back to know your strategy. Be single-minded in pursuing it. In pursuing it. it doesn't mean be inflexible. Right. Be single-minded in, in pursuing it, but be honest about what that strategy is. So. And make sure it connects to that constitutional North Star. Yeah, right. Right? Right. Over Absolutely. everything else because because the that idea is perfect. It's the, Or is the most perfect thing that's been generated by folks standing up a government yet. Right. Um, and until someone comes up with something demonstrably better, right. we need to stay focused on that North Star with yeah. everything we do. Absolutely. And yes, which means articulating it to our own people why that's such an important thing to do. Because if you've noticed and you've read the news lately, that doesn't always filter down to, like, say, our college students or our K-12 through students, unfortunately. I still have to argue about people. Uh, I still have to argue with people about if net worth is actually cash in a bank account. So... <laughs> We have a lot. We have a lot of our own. Uh, we have a lot of our own stuff to sort out, right? We do have our own stuff to sort out. Which, which and, and I'm glad that you guys are big on the education side. And yes. You guys do a lot of really amazing things uh, in education and educational entrepreneurship. Um, so 
I mean, I appreciate what you guys are doing in that space. It's huge well, and it's you. needed. It, it comes down to to create the citizens that we all hope run this republic, right? They have to have an education. They need to have skill sets. They need perspective, which we started this conversation off, as you talked right. about understanding what this constitutional idea is and then how it fits into the grand scope of history and how, yes, at times it doesn't measure up. Here's how we strive to make it better. Here's how people before you who didn't always look like you did strive to make it better, right? right. And how they left uh, a legacy that we can all hope to, to achieve. But that means being honest. And there's a lot of people in politics who don't like that. That's that's <laughs> true, man. I, and and I'll, I'll tell you, I for any of your listeners who vehemently disagree with me, mm -hmm. uh, veterans from the far reaches of Wisconsin, just reach out to me. Tell me how I'm wrong. We're going to get a beer and talk about it. Right. And we're going to find a road where we can work together on something. Right. Maybe it's not this, but uh, I want to empower every single veteran in Wisconsin. We have a massive veteran population here. And I think too often we leave the service where we were apolitical, right? Right. I, I eschewed politics while I was in because the mm -hmm. political people, particularly the intel, in the intel community, seemed to be the folks not doing any real work. <laughs> so I didn't want to be that guy. And, and so I, I ignored it. But I think a lot of folks leave and they still have that reticence to participate. Mm -hmm. But this is a participation system. And, and we need them to share their voices and their perspectives on this stuff, man. Yeah. No, I, I could not agree with you more that... Yes, there, we all have an obligation to uh, support and defend the Constitution while we're in. That requires and the military asks of you to not engage in certain forms of political activity, certainly not when you're not wearing, not when you're wearing the uniform. You can still vote. You're expected to. <laughs> you have every reason to continue to vote uh, while you're in there and to, to make your, your opinion felt. But boy, when you get out, at probably no more, at no time more so in history, your perspective is valid in the public debate. And that could mean, sure, running for office, that's great. Or it could also mean making sure that the people that represent you hear from you and understand the kind of stuff we're talking about today. Like, right. they need to hear the, the perspective of veterans. And you guys are doing a great job of bringing that to bear. I appreciate that, man. As you look out over uh, the coming months and making predictions in the area of 2020 and 2021 is not a good thing to do. It's bad business. <laughs> right. It doesn't always work out great. But uh, as you do it, what do you see CBA zeroing in on? What are some of the upcoming stuff that you have that you want to be focused well, on? Well, you know, the big, I guess really the big thing is, um, you know, we're extremely concerned that um, that Joe Biden's going to uh, re-engage fully, whether it's a surge, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, replacing GIs with contractors so that the numbers don't look as high. Um, you know, we're concerned we're going to get farther into this quagmire and not farther away from it. Um, we just launched a one and a quarter million dollar ad campaign, um, which I think, I mean, we're, we've probably raised and, and engaged in almost $3 million now in our campaign to, to end this endless war. Um, and we're going to make sure that he hears the voices of everybody. We're, um, you know, we're going to be... Uh, Reengaging in our petition process, okay. our goal is to send a million letters to the White House um, nationally. Um, that's that's probably going to be our focus here in the in the near term, and then and then, like I said earlier, we're really focused on watching the implementation of the VA Mission Act. Okay. We want to make sure that we want to make sure that that the way the VA manages that program is consistent and predictable, and it's fair to the service members who. Um, who sacrificed for, for this 
you know, uh, for this country and who we promise to provide health care. Not even necessarily great health care. We just promise to provide them health care. And, right. and we need to make sure that they that they have that, particularly for all of these service uh, service connected issues um, that folks have had over these uh, this last 20 years. Tw- I mean, we're rolling up on 20, 20 years. years. Longest war in history. Yeah. That's um, alarm bell. I mean, I still meet people who are like, we're not still in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm pretty sure that President Obama pulled us out of there. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. And, right. you know, you look at military, I mean, military communities shrinking. Uh, New York Times found 79% of new enlistees come from military families. That's 1% of 1%. Right. That number's shrinking. That means right. a smaller and smaller community is bearing this burden. Right. You know, um, there have been like, there have been two guys so far. I think they were both were Rangers, you know, who, who lost their lives after 14 combat tours. That's, That's just, insane. I mean, I, you know, That's I insane. feel like I did nothing with three, right? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and, and 14 and yeah. that's, it's just this course, this course is unsustainable right. and we all know it. Right. 80% of the public knows it. The vast majority of the veteran community knows it. I think our politicians know it. They just don't want the responsibility to take action. we got to force them to do that. Well, yeah. And you're talking about asking the question, like someone could have been born at the outset of the war. It could be a corporal serving in it today. Uh Quite legitimately, right? And I think that that requires policymakers to say, and here's why. And I stand behind it. 100%. Right? And so if they can make that, if they can articulate that view to the American people, it's on them to do it, but they should be forced to do it. And I think that is a completely reasonable expectation on the part of the American people. Are you guys looking at uh, getting involved at all in the space with what's going on with Iran and the Biden administration? Uh, I mean, yeah, so I mean, generally, so we support a policy of realism and restraint Mm -hmm. in general, um, which is just we expect military action to be the absolute last Mm -hmm. step. Um, There's endless tools there. I mean, a lot of Iran's provocations are only accessible to them because we are sitting in their backyard Mm -hmm. fixed in place. Um, on, on, on embassies and fobs that haven't moved in themselves 15 years. Sure. Um, and, and so at, at some point, at some point that has to be addressed as well, right? Is that we, we should probably not try to start an armed conflict with an adversary who we've been dangling, you know, Joe Snuffy's in front of, um, just to see if they'll take shots at them. Well, my hope is in, in, my hope is that the Biden administration, and you're getting some signals now, but I, I hope that they do not take make some of the mistakes that I believe, and again, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I believe that the Obama administration uh, did make in terms of just resource allocation to a bad actor. Oh, and yeah. That, I think, would be uh, horrific. That The appeasement. It, well, the appeasement, the allocation of capital, the yep. t- tune of hundreds of billions. You know, I we both talked about our time there, but... We found, my counter-ID team found Iranian-made IED devices. We know they're there. We know they killed Americans. My um, sister brigade, when mm-hmm. I got to Fort Lewis, 4th Striker Brigade, was the Iraq surgeon uh, mm-hmm. in 2007 mm-hmm. um, and lost dozens of guys to EFPs. They were Iranian-made. Right. There's no, There was no ifs, ands, or buts about right. it. I mean, they were capturing and interrogating CUDS forces there. Um, it's. I don't, I don't believe that that's a 
up for dispute, right? Uh, not anyone who's not amongst anyone who's realistic. I'll right. tell you. So what we're talking about is explosively formed penetrators, a special uh, concave blast that basically, when initiated, forms a molten pellet. Pellet can penetrate our armor, create a vacuum inside it, and basically blow apart everybody's inside. Yeah. One of the few devices that truly could repeatedly pierce the armor of the vehicles we're using of and kill. Yeah, right. Yeah. It could kill anyone inside. Terrific. It's such a degree of manufacturing sophistication that you know local nationals in Iraq and Afghanistan couldn't do it. Iran could, and they ceded the battlefield. It was a, per our conversation before, a low-cost mm-hmm. way of killing Americans that the Iranian government openly engaged in. I will tell you, and you may have had similar experiences or not, but when we, my team, identified an EFP as an EFP and set up a report on it, and our job, literally, I had EOD working for me. I'm not EOD, but right. I had them, and... They were literally disarming these devices. They shot up reports saying EFP from the top down, uh, saying, no, it's not. Because to do that was to admit what Iran was doing in the battlefield. Right. The push, and certainly I'll be very public about this in the coming days and weeks, depending on what the Biden administration does, is to say, look, in no way, shape, or form should you be making it easier for the Iranian government to exact its will. And Again, personal perspective here, but as you look at that series of Middle Eastern peace agreements with Israel that that suddenly popped up at the end of the Trump administration were remarkably under-reported. Right. So much of that was a rearguard action against the fear that the Biden administration would re-empower Iran to mess with that entire region. I mean, yes, some just some fantastic forward movement that we haven't seen in Ever. Thir- ever, ever, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. you say, yeah, 30, well, 40 years. inspired by fear, to be realistic. I True. Mean, it's, that's my perspective, and, yeah. and I think they saw that there could be a new administration in the Biden administration that would not be friendly to keeping Iran at bay. And so, again, getting away from just what's happening in Afghanistan, there is a whole other strategic uh, uh, initiative relative to Iran and how you keep that government, not the Iranian people, but right. that government in a box so it can't perpetrate its will. Because eventually, they will. This too shall pass, and they're right. younger, predominantly American-educated right. uh, f- people will will take over. Right. And yes, I I totally agree. I, and I, and I guess that's that's how we look at some of this Iraq occupation stuff. I mean, the Iraqi government is largely now right led mm-hmm. by Iranian puppets. Mm-hmm. So we're paying them. Right. We're paying our adversaries whilst paying to secure our adversary's backyard right. while they shoot at us just because they can, just because we're there. Right. And so to disengage is to deny them the opportunity to do that. Not to disengage from pressure from other mechanisms, yes, right. but to deny them the ability to kill our people. Right. Seems yes. like a practical thing yeah, to do. I would agree. So as we're talking about all these, these tough subjects, the, cl- the closing uh, question after you, we've been asking everybody. So you, you look out. 2020, not a fun time. There's been worse, but it wasn't fun, that's for sure. 2021, off to a uh, challenging start in many ways. What makes you optimistic about the future of our nation? When you think about what makes you hopeful, what's that? I am so totally energized and thrilled by the drive for support of school choice options in America as a result of these extremely draconian arbitrary shutdowns mm-hmm. i mean right. you know like the and i and i i have been a firm i believe in science i'm a pro-science guy 
right? And I and I but I'm consi- I feel like I'm consistent there. And so for the last 10 months the CDC has consistently said that schools need to be open, that the that the downsides of a lost generation suffering from crippling mental and emotional health and right. isolation issues um, it does not outweigh the extremely tiny transmissibility <laughs> that they've demonstrated this po- age population's demonstrated um, K through 12 kids K through 12 right, kids and right. it but and, and it's you know unfortunately it, it was just chosen as a partisan issue uh, right. for a, for a campaign year right and kind of like we saw in Act 10 here in Wisconsin mm-hmm. the fear-mongering doesn't go away after the election right when it comes to the, the teachers unions to the teachers right right they're still afraid yeah and because because that was that was the that was the, the play for an election for election's sake and it's just so unfortunate man I my five-year-old Marjorie just a, she's just a doll mm-hmm. like I watch this kid cry every day trying to do five kindergarten online yeah it hurt my heart the army dad and me just wanted to break stuff <laughs> and there was nothing I could do because I'll be honest with you man I I can't afford private school I would lo- I would love to have option access to parochial stuff i just can't afford it you know my, my wife was in school uh we're, we've both been back and forth in school you know right. we try to like trade spaces where one of us is full-time and one of us is in a master's program right. and we go back and forth so we can get by you know because right. we both um you know started new careers 10 years in right. uh, 10 years later than everybody else and so you know we understand like i understand we have juggled five jobs between the two of us um set pretty much probably since we've met and and I just I'm I'm so excited that I think people have finally seen that what is happening in our public school systems is not about what's best for children mm-hmm. ever, and and I I think that's great, man. I think I think you know, educational savings accounts, right? I I think they're on the horizon. Wisconsin is the state that invented school choice. One hundred percent. And and you know because of that though we also have a really complex patchwork system of programs that other states who started later have don't don't suffer from and so i i think i think we could potentially be then the state that that goes then to the next level where we fund students and not systems and and where where teachers can actually get paid really well because they have options right you know you know we were talking about when we didn't know if our district would open you know, we were talking about like, well, you could open a pod school. You could charge half of what daycare does, right. and you will make twice what your what your public school salary is. Right. That's crazy. Right. It indicates a lot of overhead. Huge administrative <laughs> overhead. Right. And a lot of overhead. So, so I'll tell you what. That's what I'm optimistic about. I'm optimistic about school choice. I think Wisconsin is going to be a leader in that. And I and I and I think if if anything, these good can come out of this pandemic. I, th- I think that the veil being lifted on on that is is going to be it, man. And I and I think we're gonna and and you guys are obviously you guys are part of leading that charge, yep. and that's super cool. Um, you know, our sister organization, Americans for Prosperity, is working on that stuff. That's super cool. Um, I'm, I'm that's what I'm optimistic about. I think you bring up a great point. There's an opportunity here. We have to capitalize on it. We have yes. to mobilize public sentiment and. Again, provide this as a real solution for families. And, and as you mentioned, No Better Friends out there, we're actually messaging the entire state of Wisconsin us right now. A, get kids back into school, period. And then B, school choice is a great option for people for so many different reasons. But yeah, I agree. There's, there's an opportunity here for real education reform to put kids in better positions. 
and we have to be very uh, strategic and aggressive in getting out there in front of people, explaining transparently why we think this is true, and then capitalizing on it. Um, and none of that, what we just said, was anti-teacher. It is uh, against a mindset that says that schools should not exist in order to better students. Right. We want to fight that mindset. We want to create a mindset that said we want schools 100% focus on improving students' trajectory in life. And if we get there, uh, and if this is, to your point, that this is the silver lining that comes out of the last, whatever it's been now, 18 months or however long it's been. Two weeks to stop the spread. <laughs> yeah, okay, got it. So, yeah, yeah. And right. let's just continue to make that case to people and explain. So, Absolutely. I, great thing to raise, and I appreciate it. Um, Sam, we are thrilled to have you on the Right Idea podcast. You're going to go out to the cold Waukesha night and hopefully make your way home on the, uh, the zigzagging streets. But we appreciate having you, and we look forward to talking and working with you. I sur- I'll survive out there. And thanks so much for having me, Kevin. I appreciate what you guys do, and uh, it was good coming on. Thank you. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.